Hello and welcome back to Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. My guest this week is one of the great Australian songwriters, Dave Faulkner from the Hootie Gurus. If ever you needed like a hit single to save your life, there's a good chance that Dave would be the man you'd ask to write it for you. Uh, Kicking off in September, the Gurus are heading out on a national tour with the Dandy Warhols. They've also just released a fine new album, Chariot of the Gods. On the podcast, Dave talks about everything from recording Stone Age Romeos through to songwriting in the present day, giving us a real insight into his creative process. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a good rating wherever you listen to them. And uh, I want to thank Andy Purcell from uh, Frontier for organising the chat and Jason Milhouse at Record Works for production. Now, here he is, the Hoodoo Guru's main man, Dave Faulkner. Hello, Dave. Hi, how's it going, Sean? Good. How are you? Very well, thanks. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. I can't believe it's 40 years since <laughs> what happened. I know. Well, that's, that's, that's what life does to you, isn't it? You just sort of just fall one foot in front of the other. Next thing you know, you've gone all that way over there or actually just sat in one place and it just happened around you. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's very true. I, I want to give you my commiserations on Larry Storch passing away. Yes, I did hear about that. Yeah, there's been a few losses lately. Judith Durham, that's a bit sad. Yeah. Very, very, I mean, yeah, she was a great one. Ne- never enough credit, you know, the Seekers, I think. Everyone talks about, you know, the men at works and, the, you know, all the other bands in, in excess, but Seekers were just as big as any of those bands, ACDC. You know, Seekers are a huge, phenomenal Australian success story. And they never, I think people are a little bit like, oh, it's not rock enough to be taken, you know, so they're not as proud as that as they yeah. are something like In Excess. But it really is crazy, you know. Seekers were amazing and I love their music anyway. I'm a fan, even without, you know, worrying about the uh, genres. But what a voice she had. And I think they still hold the record for the largest crowd ever to attend a concert in the Southern Hemisphere. For That's them. right. Yeah, at the Maya Music Bowl where we're going to be playing. Ah. And, of course, we won't be a threat to their record, I can tell you that. We're going to be a long way behind that one. It's going yeah, to be I, very, <laughs> very different affair. I think when that happened, one in ten people in Melbourne went to the show. Yeah. It was, it was a bit like in Adelaide, the Beatles, you know, how they, that, what was yeah. it, one in three or one in two people went to see the Beatles, uh, you know, in the street. Yeah. Incredible. Some crazy days. So given you, you spent a lot of time in Perth, what was the biggest band that would have been over there, I wonder? I know ABBA played two shows there and skipped Brisbane. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, as far as uh, international bands, I mean, I don't know, but I remember myself uh, when the Rolling Stones came um, in 1964, I think it was. Right. Um, we were actually uh, travelling across the causeway in our old Chevy my si- and my sister and I were in the back seat and we could see the Rolling Stones in the car behind us following us. There was no police escort in those days. Wow. And uh, and being kids, you know, with like, it's the Rolling Stones. And so I, I poked my tongue out. And I believe it was Brian Jones that poked his tongue back out at me. So there Amazing. we go. There was there was the, uh, the, the the baton was passed or something. Or I was yeah, touched. That's touched right. <laughs> you, you know, I, one of the first songs I ever heard of yours was uh, Television Attic by The Victims. Right. And, and I think if you had never written another song and retired, you still would have had this magnificent track. Do you remember writing that song? I do. When James wrote the lyrics and I wrote the, the melody and the, the music, though he helped a little bit in that chorus. He was like, television addict. That's what he's kind of, that was his uh, melody. And I wrote the rest of the melody and I wrote some of the lyrics as well in the verses. I, um, but he wrote the first verse. Uh, um, and, yeah, it's just, it's funny. It's one of those songs that, you know, you, 
you write them and you don't realize the impact it's going to have. Yeah. Um, you know, what's my scene was like that as well, where mm. you just write you're just writing a song, you you really like it yourself, but you don't think this is gonna be the one that people are really gonna talk about, you know. And television Ags became that song for us. I mean, when when the uh, people that funded the single, uh, it was just a couple of our fans, you know, one of them actually had a uh, fairly well-off family, and his and his father he got the money from his father to, to fund this record. You know, because we could never have raised the money. We were, you know, punk band in Perth. There wasn't much uh, interest in us from the local population, and there wasn't you know huge crowds coming to our shows, so we weren't making much money. We didn't think of it that way anyway. We we're just having fun. But um, they said, you know, we want to make a single, and uh, and yeah, that, that, they suggested which song we should do because you know they were fans, and they said that was the one that stuck out for them. Wow. So um, yeah, we we you know we just. And of course, you know, it was a magical recording session, definitely. Um, I that's my only regret about any of that is that if only we'd had the the uh perspicacity to to have actually maybe somehow cobbled together just a little bit more money and, and recorded an album in that same session, you know, instead of you know, stopping with only we did three tracks, but it would have been great to do like 10 or 12, you know, and just playing through almost live like we almost like the recording virtually was anyway. I mean, yes. I overdubbed extra guitar. But the bass, drums, and guitar went down live, and um, the main guitar track. And um, you know, I could have done an album. You know, not much more time and money would have, you know, and would have been because that sound of that session was extraordinary. It was just the confluence of in, of everything just was right. That yeah, you know, that guitar sound, that everything. And uh, the, the EP is really good, but I had a different guitar, I think, and and a different amp, and it, oh, maybe the same amp, but it was. It, it and it was just a different session. It didn't quite have the same energy in the sound of the guitar. I wasn't quite as happy with the sound of that. You know, yeah. whatever the engineer did wasn't quite as, you know, perfect as the, as the, on television addict. Just that great combination of time yeah. It was just magic. It still sounds fresh and and, and lively, and that's that's all you can judge a recording by is that it still jumps out at you and makes you feel something. I guess you hear that first Beatles album now. Yeah, you talk about trying to record an album in a day or whatever. You put that on, you feel like you're in the room with them, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, my favourite Beatles album is actually the second album, which is uh, they probably spent a, about three days doing that one. <laughs> but they, but they, um, that was still the the leftover energy of them having been a beat group, you know, playing in Liverpool yeah. and in Hamburg, and they still had that same really hardened, you know, rock and roll edge. And you know, later on, as they become more sophisticated musically, and you know, the songwriting became influenced by you know Bob Dylan and probably Smoking Pot and things like that. Things changed, and you know, and it wasn't. And it's, it's fabulous, but it, I love that. Really, just that 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 sweaty band from Hamburg and Liverpool sellers. You know, that's the uh, first album where George Harrison wrote a song, "Don't Bother Me," which he was always embarrassed about that song. But I think it's a great song. I think it's better oh, than some it. of his others. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, he, he thought it was a bit basic. But I, but I, I like the fact it's basic. You know, that's what I say. I love that kind of really straight ahead rock and roll character they had in the early days, which kind of got diluted a little bit with sophistication. You mentioned uh, writing What's My Scene, and I guess when you were writing uh, the first Hootie Gurus record, you were kind of writing in isolation, weren't you? Because, you know, your audience or what became your audience didn't know it was coming. By What's My Scene, <laughs> you know that you are writing for an audience. Uh, can, can you take me back to that period when you were writing the first album? Were yeah, you, well, uh, well, the first album was different in, in many respects in that regard because um, – uh, it was a lot of the songs were co-written, you know, mm-hmm. and, and some of them were just basically, you know, a flagon of wine in an afternoon and talking crap and just writing a song at the same time, you know, and and like the song Let's All Turn On was literally that. We just basically 
said, let's write a song. There's a bunch of people in the room and we just started tossing out band names and, and artists, you know, because we just had this idea about putting a, you know, a checklist of all our favourite influences <laughs> and it, it, it didn't come anywhere near to capturing all of them, but it got a bunch of them. Yeah. And all I did was just rhyme them, you know, make them rhyme and, you know, I ones that suggested to my name, you know, that came to my head that rhyme with ones that have been given, you know, whatever, you know, just to kind of make it work. But it was literally just an afternoon's fun, you know, like, you know, playing Scrabble. Yes. <laughs> but writing a song instead. And, you know, um, other songs were written, you know, we, we we wrote some as concepts, you know, just for fun, you know, like we like the idea of writing part one and part two of songs and, you know, having a, having a you know, like seeing singles like that when we were young, you know, that kind of you know, was always semi-mysterious. Oh, they've got a, there's a part two, you know. So we wanted that. So we, we we did Leilani 2 and we even wrote a Leilani 3, which never actually came to fruition. It ended up being, re- I recycled the riff from it into another song years later. But, um, uh, yeah, so it's just kind of like this pretty much just for the hell of it, you know, songwriting rather than for posterity or for an audience or who else is going to hear it. It's just to satisfy our our minds and our, and you know to tick, tickle that that little thing in our brains you know that that we were intrigued by and um you know the, the songwriting is still the same really i mean when you think about the audience actually is when the songs don't turn out so well mm. because um you second guess yourself and sometimes i've you know i've written certainly in the first you know few albums the occasion i write a song at, uh, where I think, oh, this is great, this, this is so catchy, it's going to be the next single. And I, you know, I had this, I'd be all, you know, gung-ho about it and then I'd listen back to it a few days later and just go, what the hell was I thinking, you know? Or, or you get to rehearsal and you, 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 you start playing and it just wouldn't, it would be lifeless. So I could never predict and I gave up, um, uh, you know, even trying to predict and, and uh, the, 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 really it was pretty much the first song on the second album, you know, Bittersweet, that kind of set that whole thing on its ear anyway because I wrote that song and I remember very well when I was writing it, I thought no one was ever going to hear this song. This is not a song that the Gurus will want to play. It's nothing like anything we've done before. It's not like what we do. And I just thought, but, you know, I had to write it. Just, it, it, it musically and also lyrically, it was just things I wanted to say and I just I just had to get it out of my system and, and just write the song that, to the best of my ability, the song that's in front of you. And that's what I've always done and try not to think about where it's going. And yeah. sometimes, you know, um, and after a while I did sort of get a slight inkling because I have songs that didn't make it that I thought was a good song as well. I mean, there were the other songs that I said that, that weren't as good as I thought they were, but there's others which I thought that's really good and I don't know why it didn't work in rehearsal this day. It should, you know, and so I have to put it aside for another year. And that was... Um, uh, the song uh, She was like that. I think that was one that, um, and, and also from the second album and also from the third album, the song called Where Nowhere Is. Mm-hmm. I kind of had, you know, I tried it once and it didn't quite uh, work and I just thought, well, rather than, you know, try and make push through something that's not, not not happening, I'll just leave it. And I brought it back to the next sessions and people had forgotten about it because they hadn't really done it much, you know, just just you know, started on it. So it was, it was like fresh to them that time. And, it's, and then it would click. So... That would happen as well. <laughs> what other experiences would I have? Um, then I'd have, I, I, I got a theory, so I'm sorry to be long-winded about this, but this is actually kind of very interesting to me yeah. as a writer. <laughs> um, I noticed for a long time that, that I would, that you'd get the band would be, you know, doing demos for an album. And, you know, because it did, we, you know, we, we, when we, uh, you know, prepare to make an album, it was like a very concentrated period of work on new songs. It wasn't like 
we'd write a song and be sitting around for a year, you know, and then you know, we have another song turn up another time and that we might, you know, eventually say, okay, we've got enough for an album. That's not how it worked. We'd always be doing a concentrated sort of effort of, of uh, you know, doing new material to, to record an album that was going to be in the next few months. We'd had, a, you know, a, a recording dates booked and producer lined up or whatever. It was all kind of like very clear. And uh, and that's always how I worked as a writer as well. I I tend to assemble scraps of ideas and melodies and, you know, and riffs and, and things like that. And it's not until there's actually an album due that, I, you know, where I, I have to commit myself that I actually force myself to sit down and finish the songs and, and to actually complete lyrics and to actually, you know, write whatever other parts are missing, such as a chorus or a, a verse, you know, if it's just in a sort of a, a germ of an idea. So, um, so I bring those things into the studio sometimes and, you know, sometimes I, I, I sort of classified in my mind like A material, B material and C material. And so some, so if I got an A material song over where I'd say, you know, this is a, I think this is a really great song that really should work and it would work, and i go, okay, great, and then maybe do another A material song. But then I found over, over time that if I brought the, another, a third A material song in a row after that, mm. it sometimes wouldn't work. And it was like a concentration thing maybe with the band, you know, kind of like we're feeling like goofing off a bit, just wouldn't kind of, you know, didn't seem to strike the right thing. So I, I thought, well, rather than waste a song that I think is really important, I should not push my luck. And I'll just try something I'm not sure about. And sometimes that would be something kind of a little bit unusual that would therefore, you know, spark something in the other guys like Mark Kingsman might do an amazing groove to it that would suddenly bring it to life. Um, and that those so that was the song that I wasn't thinking like well that yeah that's kind of like a half an idea but it sounded like something really good now so I should really kind of work on this and so I finished that song so that was sort of how it worked so I, I kind of eventually had a a way of dealing with the other people in the band you know but as a writer yeah you can't really predict you just kind of go with the flow yeah that's interesting you know I interviewed David Bowie when he made Heathen and he said to me a similar thing that he would turn up hours before Tony Visconti got there to finish things because he didn't want things too finessed or polished before the other musicians got to play on it. It had to be polished for him as well. So it sounds like you're doing a similar thing by keeping your ideas alive but not completely finishing them before you Certainly the case of the having me like the the source tapes of all my little ascent, like little my, you know, I kind of thinking like as as like a you know an artist's workbook, you know. They're not finished paintings or, you know, drawings. They're just details you know and then you you add and then that kind of suggests something more to you later at the time you know and then and whatever's in your in the air around you when you're finishing the song is that's you know whatever you want to express in your life or you know that's been happening that you've been seeing um that comes out then you know rather than being sealed in amber like a song that's finished and waiting for two years until we get around to playing it which occasionally does happen as i say some songs i did put off but i wouldn't have finished lyrics for, for any any song pretty much uh, you know, like our wipeout, I had to sing the write the lyrics that morning to finish that off to go record it because, you know, it was just the album was nearly finished and we thought that was going to be a B side and I didn't really, you know, we we recorded it virtually live in the studio and and uh, it was I I thought it was you know kind of like a bit of an imposition that I had to go in on a Saturday morning and and sing this song when I should be having goofing off on a weekend, you know, so um, I was a bit shirty and I. I Woke up in the morning. I didn't have finished lyrics. So I better write another verse, and and uh, went in there and pretty much sang it in one take because I was kind of 
eager to get out there and get out of there and go back and, you know, probably get another flag and a wine in the afternoon somewhere with my friends or something. I don't know what I was up to, but whatever it was, I just wasn't keen to be doing work on a Saturday morning in the studio by myself when the rest of the band were, you know, having fun. You know, it's funny you mentioned that song because uh, I, I remember distinctly the first album had come out, Stone Age Romeos, and I went to see you play at the Mansfield Tavern. Uh, and the place was must have been fifteen hundred people crammed in there. And the DJ, every time I saw you there, for some strange reason, would always play American Pie before you came on. Oh yes, and it was like eight minutes or something. I know that was a every- that was a bane of our existence. That that DJ did that for years because <laughs> basically we just say, okay, we're ready to go on. You know, next you know next after you finish this song, you know, you one more song, we'll be on. And so he'd play American Pie. Kind of like as a fuck you or something. I don't know why, but it's like, you know, because it was also a real crowd pleaser on the dance, you know, for all the sing along the audience. So he was like, here's my moment to have a, you know, yeah. finale. And it was like eight minutes. So we'd be sitting there going, uh, okay, we're going <laughs> to. And, you know, it was just kind of weird. You know, DJs have, they have this, you know, sort of antipathy to the live musicians, even though we were supposed to be, you know, in cahoots to make people have fun. I remember playing a gig with Rob Hurst at the Cherry Bar and, uh, the DJ said, well, play this song, then you can go on. But he pl- started the Evie trilogy. Right. He said to me, are you going on? I said, we can't stop the trilogy halfway through. I know. The whole thing out. But the point I was going to make about uh, the Mansfield Tavern, he played American Pie, and then you guys came on. The record hadn't been released yet, and you played Like Wow, Wipe Out. Right. And it completely blew my teenage mind <laughs> that a song could be this good. But just waiting months, or it felt like a year for the new album to come out. And yeah, right. <laughs> and finally, I remember Triple M said, We're going to play the new Huda Guru single. I'm thinking, This has to be the song I've been waiting for. But it, I think it ended up being the it second was, single off the album. It was the second single. So, Bittersweet was the first single. And as I said, it was a song that, you know, would have been a bit of a shock to you, I suppose, at the time. Given, yeah, you know, so I, was, I was waiting for like, Wow, why? Yeah, but also, even like the stylistically, it was like oh, yeah. quite a departure. And as I say, you know, when I got into the room with the band, you know, I'd written a song and I thought, well, they're never going to play this, but we just try it. And, of course, it sounded great and, and everyone liked it, you know, and we could tell, you know, we were, you know, that's, you know, we're spectators as much as, you know, we don't we, we don't choose to, to make the music different, you know, it just is what it is, you know, when we play it and we recognise, you know, what turns us on about it, you know, and so yeah. it was obvious to all of us that it was, it was great. But, yeah. but like that Wipeout, we were wrong about it in the sense that we loved it but we thought of it as purely as a bit of fun, you know, a bit of rock and roll, you know, having a lash. I mean, it was our producer, Charles Fisher, who, you know, kind of um, marshaled it through out of the, the idea of having it on a B-side. He said, that should go on the album. And we thought, oh, okay, great, sure, why not? We love it, you know. And then he said, that should be the next single. I was like, what? This song with feedback? Who's going to play this on radio? We know how conservative radio were. They didn't like loud guitars as it was, let alone feedback. Yeah. And this song that's so rambunctious and, you know, not not nice, not like, you know, that lovely electro pop, which is all around the, the charts at the time, you know, which was yeah. the prevailing industry, you know, preferred music. You know, we weren't, we were very, un, uh, un, you know, unorthodox for them. And, they, they, you know, I mean, you talk about real mainstream pop stations now, obviously, yeah. not alternative radio, but, um they played it and loved it, and the audience loved it. So I don't, you know, what do we know? The producer, you know, Charles Fisher is a is he's a great guy, Charles. I mean, a bit of a legend. Well, I mean, you know, anybody that did Radio Birdman and Savage Garden, I know, 
I know. He and uh, movie pictures, and uh, yeah, he's, he's he's got an incredibly diverse uh, and Hoodoo Gurus, of course. He's, he he worked on three albums with us, um, yeah. and uh, so is Ed Stasian now as well. So we've we've got two pretty amazing guys that we worked with several times, and uh, we had to also should mention Alan Thorne, who we worked with on three albums. He produced the first album, um, but we he was our engineer. I mean. I guess he was a co-producer, really, because he really was really helpful to me. Uh, you know, I basically produced those records, but he was obviously someone that you know we trusted and had a great ear and was a great sounding board for ideas. So I mean, he he really was an, an unofficial co-producer of those two albums, you know, that, which was um, Madden Come Louder and uh, Kinky. Yeah. So yeah, we worked with some great people, you know, several times. If ever I see one of those lists and it goes the greatest debut albums of all time, I always think. Did somebody think they made a better record than Stone Age Romeo's? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I think, you know, we you, people kind of get sick of saying that and so sometimes they pushed us down the list, you know. Yeah. Or, 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 or let me be honest, you know, Triple J, who we are, we are out of step with, you know, in yeah. terms of certain people in that organisation and uh, they've made it a bit of an, uh, you know, a, a hobby of, uh, you know, pushing us away. And, uh, you know, so we won't show up on their list very high, I can tell you that. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, that's just nuts. But fast forwarding now to Chariot of the Gods, uh, again, you guys always have the best album titles. <laughs> uh, and in fact, I've often wondered, Dave, with your writing uh, again on the new album, do you ever sort of stockpile titles for songs? Because uh, it feels like uh, the titles often might influence the melody or the the attitude or the vibe of the song. Um, usually the lyrics come second. Um, that in the case of the Chariot of the Gods, that that was one specific case where that did happen. I mean, I I thought of that title for the album, and I thought I really liked that, and I and I wasn't even sure if the other guys would like it. Sometimes you know, there's a bit of you know argy bargy about stuff like that. Um, and but I just thought this is really good because you know, and I and I kind of thought it appealed to Brad because he's a big fan of that uh, you know original book and the movie and that whole craze that 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 happened which is so ridiculous about you know aliens you know building the pyramids or whatever um and he's actually got the soundtrack album of the original film that that came out so brad's a big fan so i thought it'd probably land on a fertile ground there with that title but um it actually uh the title suggested something else to me which you know um uh which is what inspired the title track so i i had to specifically write a a song with that title in mind and uh and that is what became the title track. Um, so, yeah, the song didn't come first in this case. But um, the song, you know, is obviously, I think, I think I've talked about it quite a few times, is, is actually um, a metaphor, you know, using alien invasion, you know, this sort of idea of like a you know, hostile, you know, war of the worlds type scenario where uh, humans are being hunted to extinction um, by this alien super race. Uh, I use it as a metaphor, in fact, to be... Uh, what would be a, a parallel to what happened to the Aboriginal people when the, the, the Europeans arrived with yeah. all their technology. And, you know, it wasn't because, you know, European culture was so much more sophisticated that therefore, you know, the primitive Aboriginal culture had to give way to yeah. this, you know, this better way of living. No, it wasn't that at all. It was the fact that we had diseases, you know, and, uh, and superior technology and they had, couldn't resist. You know, you can't beat a cannon with a, with a boomerang Mm-hmm. Um, and a spear. So that was the, you know, the, the metaphor. It was like I was trying to draw that metaphor so that people that, let's be honest, there's a lot of people that don't think 
very clearly about these things and, you know, think that, oh, you know, I grew up in, in the white Australia and it's a very, you know, obviously it's better, you know, because of all the things we have, television and cars and all that. You know, of course, who could, we couldn't live like the way it used to be. So obviously it had to be this way. And it's like, well, yeah, but imagine if you were the other, if the shoe was on the other foot and you had these people coming in that just took over with their technology and how would that be? And you, you don't understand, you know, try to identify that pain and that and the, and the legacy of that that moment and that history that's mm. ongoing. Yes. And and uh, so I thought this is a way of doing it in a, in a fictional way that people could actually respond to and hopefully draw that parallel in their minds. I mean, I'm not sure they are, but um, mm. Mm. it's there if they want it. And I make specific references in the lyrics about that. Um, there's a book called Guns, Germs and Steel, which I mentioned in the lyrics, which is all about subjugation of Indigenous cultures around the world by uh, Europeans and uh, technology and, you know, colonisation. And, um, yeah, I think there's something else in there as well. I can't specifically remember now. but it is, I feel, I, Oh, that's right. Of course, they have the, they have the didgeridoo play. Mm. So that's kind of a sonic uh, clue as to what I'm talking about right there. You know, how is that, what's that doing on a track about aliens invading Earth? Well, yes, now yes. we know. Yes. With this record, I was wondering, um, we mentioned that idea earlier of you writing in isolation. Was this a thing where the record company came to you and said we want a new album or did you go, no, it's fine, <laughs> no. I want to write some songs and make an album? No, no, we, it was me getting sick of not having one, you know, and, and for a long time we weren't able to do an album because um, – Mark, you know, wanted to retire for a long time. Yeah. Pretty much only within a year or so of the last album being released, he pretty much decided that was it for him. He was going to work his way through and get a little bit more money saved up. I mean, I, I, I'm, I am uh, inferring things. It may not be exactly how he felt, but this is sort of what the impression I've, could be, I've gotten from it mm. is that he, and, you know, he's, he, he's said several times, you know, look, I feel bad, I keep on knocking back gigs, you know, because he was kind of over it. Yeah. And he and he'd sort of like he pretty much would want to continue as long as it was kind of not too difficult. But he didn't want to do any more albums because he knew if we did an album, I'd be saying we'd have to go and do like a big tour to promote it. And he didn't want to do too much playing. He wanted to do you know, a bit, bit of the comfortable shows, big festivals, you know, where you get yeah. a lot of money. It's not so often you don't have to play as long as set because you're on a big bill. And you know, it's very comfortable backstage and it's you know, and it's it's I think it's and they're usually like one on the weekend or you know, two, say, you know, it's not like doing a whole run of weeks of gigs on tour with an album tour so that was sort of his whole motivation and and for a long time we didn't know that it was just he was just turning down gigs and saying ah you know you know whatever you know so it wasn't until we we actually um we were in south africa we did a special show there for, a, for an australian company so us over there which is kind of weird coles to newcastle bring musicians to africa why would you do why would you do that but um, they did it, you know, because it was, you know, their, their local people, the Australians going there, so they thought they'd like us. Um, so uh, Mark, that's when he kind of let it let us in on this whole thing, the way he was thinking, and that that he was pretty much, you know, he didn't like a tour that much anymore. And and so we were. Uh, then eventually, he did retire. He said, "That's it, I'm done." And we got Nick in at that time, and. Uh, it wasn't quite clicking with us, you know, and we were still a bit, you know, we missed Mark and we always felt that we were going to break up if one of us left the band yeah. and uh, and we just didn't feel ourselves in it and it, it it was hard, you know, and it's afraid that, you know, Nick was like the rebound relationship, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and after a couple, of, like 18 months of being um, retired, Mark actually kind of had regrets. He kind of missed playing. And also, I think he spent a bit of money on a renovation at home. He was feeling a bit less like he'd quite had as much, you know, 
put away in the piggy bank that he'd imagined, you know, to last him. So he just thought he could top up a little bit of money as well, I think. So anyway, whatever, he came back and we were excited to have him back. So Nick was, you know, also going, yeah, of course, you, know, you guys should have Mark if he wants to play. So we did that for another bit of nearly a year and a half again, maybe about 14 months. And then Mark, whether he saved enough money or he scratched that itch, whatever it was, he went, you know what, I really do want to retire. And so that was the moment then where we just kind of had to make a, a real decision. It's like we weren't sure about Nick. You know, we didn't know we'd ever find another Mark Kingsmill. What do we do? Should we break up after all? And yeah. when Mark finishes, and that's we've sort of just been basically hanging on for as long as Mark would do it, even, you know, for years. We just thought, well, we, we don't want to make any decision. We're just going to see how far we can go and what happens. Yes. So I knew we can't make an album, but we'll do shows. And we I fig- figured out things that would kind of keep something happening, such as doing Dig It Up, mm-hmm. those two Dig It Up festivals. They were all part of that time. You know, we did, and well, we also did the uh, the reunion of all the old members at uh, for Vivid. Yeah. That was, again, that was kind of making something happen because we didn't have an album to promote. There was no, you know, Washington Hooter Grisby playing. Well, here's something different, you know, and... Yes. So there were things that kept me, you know, being creative on, on that sort of level, but I, you know, couldn't do a record. Anyway, so the upshot of it all was once Mark finally pulled the pin for the second time, we we decided, you know what, we still want to play music and we really want to do a record. So, yeah. you know, if we gonna, we knew if we kept going, we had to make a new record, new music. Yes. That would, that's the only reason to be around is to actually to contribute music and not just to, you know, Coast on past glories and just be a, be a you know a circus act. So um, that's what we did. So when we got Nick back in after trying many other drummers, by the way, we did try other people, and Nick was the guy all along. Yeah. And uh, you know, of course, we're very happy now that we've got Nick, and it's worked so well with this album. You know, the, the, and the feeling we have together with Nick is a new energy that's different to Mark, and as much as Mark was different to James. Yes. And uh, but it's equally strong, and it's got its own sort of merits, you know, that that uh, outweigh the things you lose. And um, so that's what happened. So it was just a matter of, you know, once Nick was in the band properly, it was just then, okay, we're going to be making an album. So it took me another year or so to kind of, you know, finally feel like we, you know, we should start doing that. And of course, um, we did a single, and then COVID hit. <laughs> that was that was 2019. It came out just. Uh, in December 2019, and then of course we were planning and doing it as a series of singles, much like Stone Age Romeo's. Yeah, uh, and uh, and we were preparing for our second single, which was we'd already chosen the songs, we rehearsed them, which was um, uh, Get Out of Dodge, and also uh, Carry On. Both songs were there. And we're going to say, well, this is going to be a single. That's going to be a single. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll, we'll book a session, and, and unfortunately, of course, COVID got in the way, and uh, you know made it a whole drawn out affair. But yeah, that was what it was all about. Making a record it was always there once we got Nick back in the band. It's a very good record. Uh, it's a great record, in fact. And the fact you've got the actual long version on vinyl is pretty cool too. <laughs> yeah, that was um, you know yeah. happenstance, really. I mean, it just um, we, while we were recording, um, someone approached us to do a a live uh, recording of of something just for their radio show in America, then in New York station. And so I, I we'd always talked about doing "I Want to Be Your Man." By the Beatles, because it's um, it's actually Brad's first suggestion, and I loved it. You know, there's many years ago we've had it in the back of our minds. We really want to do a version of that song because we just think it's such a primitive song. Mm. You know, like it's, it sounds like cavemen, like the Trogs could have could have written it. Yeah. I want to be your lover. I want to be your man. That's pretty much all the lyrics. And uh, and we just thought of doing it like that. And of course, when it's asked, we also add a little bit of a psychedelic, you know, nuggetsy kind of you know fuzz guitar to everything we do when we do a cover. 
or often. Um, so that was so we did that, and that was there. And then yeah, another track sometime later, in the middle of you know interrupted sessions due to COVID, um, we had another request. Someone was talking about doing a Dylan tribute album, and um, they wanted us to contribute a song to that. And uh, so we recorded, uh, you know, I chose that song from Blonde on Blonde. Um, and and uh, then um, so we had these two songs lying around. And on top of that, we had the non-album single being, um, you know, uh, yeah, yeah uh, hung out to dry, which was a mistake, to be honest. We should have put it on the album, I, think, yeah. I see now. But we were just sort of so sick of Trump and we hoped that he would be an ancient history now, which, you know, he's out of office, but, of course, he's still a nuisance and a noise and on the scene politically. So that threat is not over as, you know, as far as to our real world. But we didn't want to have him on our album kind of sticking up the joint, you know, thinking about <laughs> Donald Trump. So that was why we didn't put it on the album. But it's a great song. It should have gone on the album. But anyway, so that's, so we had these three songs. We thought, well, what the hell, you know, and, and we knew there was too many songs uh in, in length of time as well as number of tracks for a, a single vinyl album mm. just because, you know, 20 minutes aside is kind of optimal yeah. for, for a good cut. So um, and we had the experience in the previous album where we put 16 songs on it with uh, Pudor Vessels that came out on vinyl in Spain as a double vinyl album. So we just thought, well, let's do the same thing again. So we had 13 on the album. Let's throw another three on them and get 16, which four tracks aside is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Given you're such a, a prolific writer um, and you've got this sort of, you know, wind at your back now, can you see the Gurus making another album quickly, given there's been such a lag between this no, one? No, I can't, actually. I, I really think this will this will do us for a while, if not forever. This will right. be the last album. Um, okay. Yeah, because we are getting on and, you know, and, and I'm really proud of it. I don't want to, you know, push our luck. Mm. But you never know. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> many a slip took the cup in the lip. Um, you know, I, I can't predict the future, but uh, yeah. I'm thinking this will kind of be it um, for us as far as new albums go. Right. So, uh, and, you know, that kind of probably means that there's a finite end to our touring as well because I don't see us doing one without the other. And we should mention the tour, of course, with the Dandy Warhols playing with you, which is very exciting. Was that your idea to bring the Dandies out? It actually was a suggestion from Frontier, which was nice, nice. you know. Um, you know, they were a bit creative. We know the Dandies, of course. We've met them in the past. I mean, Courtney uh, was a spectator on the side of one of our shows very early on. We, we played uh, tours in, we began some tours in Seattle and uh, and Portland. Uh, and so so Courtney must have seen us because he, we know he has, you know, and uh, he mentioned it. So, yeah, it was kind of, we, you know, it kind of made sense straight away when someone said it, you know. We would have thought of them off, you know, because, I, you know, it's not like I had them on speed dial. Yeah. But um, we've been talking since then, and, and uh, it's been quite funny. We we both share a common love of, of good wine. Oh. So, yeah, so Courtney's uh, he's uh, teeing up all these different wine adventures while he's here, which I, I may or may not join him on. I might have to leave him to some of them by himself, but I might uh, see how we go in WA and the Margaret River area. How, how do you go about choosing the set list now with a brand-new album and so many things behind you? I know, it's tough. Um, the... Uh, yeah, the, the hardest thing is actually trying to squeeze in those less less travelled back catalogue songs, you know, because obviously we're going to put in some new songs on the album that we love, that the newest album, and there are some other songs that we know have to go in there, otherwise we'll just get, you know, lynched from certain people who will say, you know, that they were, uh, we did a bait and switch. It's the Hoodoo Gurus, but not, they're not being the Hoodoo Gurus, but not playing these famous iconic songs. So we have to do some of those songs. But, 
yeah, it's those other songs are the ones we really have to sort of go, well, where do we put that one in and what, what can't we put in and what, you know. Yeah. So those are things that will be varying on the sets, but there'll be certain parts of sets that won't change, such as, you know, those iconic tracks you know, that we do. But, um, yeah, the, with the new album, we'll be, you know, able to cycle a few of those around so we can count with the whole album, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a few choices there. <laughs> G- given you've had so much success in America, will you be going back there to play again? We are. We are, we are planning. Um, the tour is actually pretty much being booked now. Wow. And it's being announced, uh, you know, for, the, for uh, next year. But we aren't announcing it yet. It's going to be announced in the next few weeks, probably. Um, we're going to New Zealand in March next year for the first time in many, many decades. Um, we're also planning on going to Brazil before the US. And uh, again, that's going to be announced soon. And, and also Europe. So, um, yeah, next year is pretty much we're packing our suitcases and, you know, shuttling around the world uh, quite a lot. So, um, yeah. So we are. Yes, indeed. We're doing exactly that. We were supposed to be there or have already done that in April, uh, April, May this year. But uh, unfortunately, that tour was postponed twice and then we cancelled at the end of last year when we saw that Delta was, you know, a problem and we just didn't feel safe. Now, I was doing some research this morning and one thing that struck out when I was kind of searching around the vastness of the internet, you were on the Don Lane show. Very much so. That's a legendary first appearance. Uh, Not not as my first appearance. But it was an early appearance in the band in, when we were called Lohudu Gurus. Um, our first appearance actually was on television for the Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. That was actually the night before we did our very first show anywhere. And oh, we actually had a story on Wonderworld, which was done through Kimball having connections through his film connections with people that worked on the show. And uh, they got us in under this sort of pretense that it's, you know, they had a lot of young alternative bands on there, yeah, like yeah. bands like Drop Bears and bands like that. You know, they yeah. bring a single out and they put them on. It was kind of cool, actually. I remember seeing but, on there. Yeah, right. Yeah, and so they, but they, they, the way they sold it to the producer was, we're going to show kids about how to form a band by getting this new band started and show them it. It was complete nonsense. There was nothing about forming a band and nothing instructive at all. Just asking, you know clowning around in front of some demos we did just in, you know, specifically for that show. Those demos eventually came out on, the, on one of our, uh, um, you know, compilation albums. We put them out on, the, on this album called uh, Bubble and Squeak. But um, uh, that was our very first performance and it actually happened to be by the time it got aired, as it turned out, it was actually the night before our first show. Um, and then Don Lane was probably a few months later and, again, that was through Kimball. Uh, a mate of his had this uh, silly trick where his dog would would howl like pets often do you know specifically dogs when you sing some yeah. some dogs howl like they like they're in their wolf pack or something yeah and uh his dog would always do that so he 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 took this as a little gimmick you know novelty act and he was on don lane show a few times by this point <laughs> and so he wanted to come back on the don lane and he said well what i'll do to freshen up the act i've actually got this backing band now and he's got a rock band playing behind him this dog and, and the yeah. singer so we we did this this song he sang this cover of a song called My Mother's Eyes, an old vaudeville song, I think. When we and you know, I played piano, in fact. Um, and uh, and he called he called it My Molly's Eyes, whose dog's name was Molly. And in fact, Molly, they ended up making a movie about Molly, the singing dog, <laughs> which was a bit of a dud, but you know, they actually had a movie. So he, he really he made quite a lot out of this one silly little, you know, trick of this dog, you know, howling whenever he sang. Uh, and he, you know, it was a funny, it was just 
going for a laugh and it, it worked well. And, you know, it got us to Melbourne for our very first tour of, the, of Melbourne. We hadn't been there before. Obviously, we weren't well known. We had no record contract or anything. We, so Don Lane paid for us to go down there and we had, did some gigs at the Tote and, uh, you know, started the uh, the, the uh, onslaught down there eventually, you know. And, and the rest is history. Yeah, sort of. Oh, but that, you can still find that video. I know I had a sort of a quiff, so very early in the band's career, so um, I had a sort of quiff uh, at that time. You can sort of see me in silhouette. And so Rod and, and Kimball on um, guitar and James on drums, of course. Brilliant, brilliant. I really can't wait to see the show. I'm so glad you're back on the road, and congratulations on the album. Thank you. Yeah, we love the album. And, uh, yeah, we, we're, and we also love and playing again. You know, it's going to be – it's been weird these last, you know, couple of years, um, three, nearly three years, uh, you know, just – Longest time in my life of not, you know, doing a lot of touring. We we managed to do some shows, luckily, with uh, Red Hot Summer, but, yeah, it's good to go and do some of our own shows and, you know. When I saw you on the Red Hot Summer show, maybe about almost two years ago. Yeah. And I couldn't believe the energy you guys had. It was like you were reborn. It was terrific. So I can't wait to see you on this tour. Yeah, well, that's Nick, as I say. You know, he's, he's we, we have a certain, you know, a new thing going. It's still, you know, it's classic gurus. We still, be, you know, play the songs with just as much fire, but there's a certain sort of different sort of style in Nick's playing. He's got a bit more swing, yeah. which does it brings out a different character. And certainly it's, it's what's caused the songs on the new album to be the way they are. It's, it's it just as, you know, I'd say about, you know, Bittersweet, you know, when we walked in the room and we played that, whether it worked or not, it's the same thing with the new songs. They, the way Nick's playing and the way that brought out things in the songs and yeah. certain songs. Just seemed like a natural fit, and just and that's what you know inspired us. So yeah, just playing live will just be you know the icing on the cake for that. Great, Dave. I can't wait. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Sean. Take care then. Bye bye. Yes, mate. Bye. bye.